morning. For those of you who may not uh, know me, my name is Roman Gonzalez, and I am the assistant pastor here at Ironworks. Um, and well, today I'm going to be bringing um, the word of the Lord um, to you. On July the 30th uh, of 2019, uh, I was in the hallway of, um, well, I was in the, I'm sorry, uh, I was in the, in the hallway in the middle of the uh, two waiting rooms in a hospital in Mexico. It was the beginning of the uh, first wave of uh, the pandemic. And as you can imagine, nobody wanted to have physical contact with anyone. The room or that place was packed, so being able to keep social distancing uh, was, was really impossible. And being on that, uh, in that hallway, I was involved in a long conversation uh, with God uh, saying, please don't take him with you just yet. Please don't take him with you just yet. Uh, then on uh, 12, 15 of July the 31st, the doctor approached me in that hallway in Mexico. And he said, young man, your dad just passed away. He wasn't able to recover after the surgery. Can I go see him? I said. And he said, yes, you, you can go. And I, as I was walking towards his room, uh, the door was open, so I was able to see him at the distance. And I remember telling to myself, as I was walking towards him, my hero, my strong man, my superman is gone. And he looked like as, he, uh, as if he were sleeping, but I knew, I knew that this time he was not going to wake up or at least for some time. The passage that we are going to be considering today uh, speaks to us about Christian suffering. And I'm going to invite Becky Olson to come forward and to read the passage for us. Passages, Romans 8, 14 through 18. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Becky. All of us are familiar with pain and suffering in one way or another. And let me say that this morning I'm coming to you um, as a pastor, as a friend, as a brother, but also as someone who is familiar with the sufferings of this world. 
like many of you when suffering, I have gone to God with questions that he never answered because he considered those or that was not my business. So I don't come to you today as someone who has figured out all the reasons for Christian suffering or as someone who has graduate or graduated from the school of suffering. I am coming to you this morning as a fellow brother who also suffers. And the first thing that I would like to consider uh, today in, in, from our text um, is the Christian reality of suffering. The Christian reality of suffering. Uh, Paul assumes in Romans 8, uh, verses 17 and 18, that Christians suffer. Contrary to what some Christian circles teach, Christian uh, suffering is a Christian reality. Do you hear that? Christians suffer. Faithful Christians have gone before us that, uh, that I'm sorry, that has, uh, have gone before us have suffered. It is said that Martin Luther, the great theologian of the Reformation, was constantly in pain. There were times when he, the pain was going to be so um, um, uh, intense that he would think that when he was alone in his room, the only person with him was Satan, accusing him and telling him that he was suffering because of his sin. Bonhoeffer, the theologian who opposed Hitler, also suffered. On July 16th in 1944, awaiting execution in a Nazi prison, and reflecting on Christ's experience in powerlessness and pain, Dietrich Bonhoeffer penned six works that became the clarion, the clarion call for the modern theological paradigm. Only the suffering God can help. The renowned Baptist minister, known as the Prince of Preachers, once said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. And it is very well known that Spurgeon suffered depression for the rest of his life, during his whole, whole life. And just a couple of days ago, as uh, our brother Phil was praying, the PCA, our denomination, lost two pastors in two days. Harry Reeder, the minister of Brian Wood Presbyterian Church, die, died in a car accident. And just uh, two days ago, the renowned pastor Keller, Tim Keller, died after fighting against cancer for three year, years. So great and faithful Christians have suffered because suffering is a reality of the Christian life. But some of you also have gone through painful and devastating experiences of suffering. Some of you. Some of you have wounds that will never be healed in this life. Some of you live with painful memories from your past. Some of you are 
maybe going through a deep moment of dark, darkness and depression, and the darkness has prolonged so far that you feel that you can't any longer because it's painful. So suffering is a reality of the Christian life. The, te the text we are considering today assumes then that Christians suffer. Paul says in verse 19, For I consider the sufferings of the present time. Now the phrase, this present time, is a technical uh, phrase that Paul uses to refer to, refer to the evil age. Uh, in contrast with the age to come. So this is like a paradigm that Paul always uses, the, the present evil age and the age to come. The evil age, as uh, uh, Westminster professor Richard Gaffin says, is the present world, which was originally good, but now, after the fall, marked fundamentally by sin, corruption, imperfection, and death. That's why... Christians experience suffering. And then the age to come um, is the final world um, in the eschatological age of righteousness, uncorruption, perfection, and life. So as the uh, Princeton theologian Charles Hodge says, the sufferings of this present time are not the sufferings before you go to uh, eternity. They certainly include them but it is more than just the sufferings that you experience throughout your life. Uh, the sufferings of um, this world uh, are rather than just our personal sufferings. Galatians 1.4 says that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. In the movie Narnia, if you uh, recall... This present time, uh, or this present evil age, is depicted by a cold winter that has left the whole world covered with layers and layers of snow. The age to come, of the new, or, or the new age, is depicted by the arrival of the spring when Ashlas, Ashlan arrives. So Christian suffering is a reality uh, for all of us because we live in the present, in the present time. That's why uh, Luther, uh, Bonhoeffer, Spurgeon, um, and us also suffer. Now, the second thing that I would like to uh, highlight from our text is the proper way to consider suffering. And this is not the only way to consider suffering, but it's one way to considering suffer. It is uh, said that when we are going through pain and suffering, we are most tempted to doubt God's love for us, and we are tempted to respond with self-pity, anger, resentment, or jealousy. The, the hour of darkness is a time when you are more vulnerable to question the Father's love for you. Pain and suffering, whatever the nature of it, or, the, or whatever the cause of it, can change your view 
<clears throat> of God. Many of us don't realize that during suffering, we have changed from our confessional theology to a weird functional theology. In 1981, uh, the Jewish rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he wrote this book after his three years old um, son, Aaron, was diagnosed with a incurable uh, disease. The boy suffered from effects of premature aging for a decade and died at just 14 years, years old. In a conference where, where he talks about this experience, Rabbi Kushner explains that he had to change his theology about God, about what he believed about God. He couldn't deal with the idea that a good and all-powerful and just God who is sovereign over all would kill his little boy to give a lesson to others. He would say, that is not fair. Why my son has to die so that others can learn. So after his son died at the age of 14, he started to teach that God was not all-powerful. He says, when I went through a very serious crisis when we found out what my son's life would be like. I found myself asking, can I continue as a religious affirming person? Or is it everything that I have spent my life teaching a lie? Can I continue as a rabbi watching other people's children growing up and knowing that my son would never grow up. You know, sometimes we do the same uh, rabbi, this rabbi does. And probably is not as um, remarkable maybe as he is doing here. But sometimes when we are going through suffering and pain, we started to question the love of God for us. We started to ask or say, God does not listen to me. He is busy with other Christians. He does not really love me. Some of us, we don't doubt about God's love, but some of us start complaining about um, the ways of the Lord. Kushner also says, I locate myself in the honorable Jewish tradition which says that it is legitimate to call God to account in the name of his own standards of justice. He says it is legitimate to call God to account in the name of his own standards of justice. And you know, I do really believe that if done properly, there, is, there are occasions where, when God in his mercy allows us to question why he is doing what he is doing. But hear me well, I said if done properly, okay? Sometimes it is okay to ask God, why are you doing this? Sometimes it's, why, uh, it's, it's, good, uh, uh, it's okay to, to do this. R remember when Abraham asked God, would the righteous God kill innocent people together with the wicked ones? Job did the same. 
And you know, if, if you don't think that this might be something proper for you to do, just think about the book of Psalms, and especially the book of, the, the section of Psalms of Lament. They teach us that there is a proper way to come before God, to complain before God. Psalm 142, 1 and 2 says, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I brought my complaint before him. I tell, I tell my trouble before him. Do you see? God wants us to come to complain and complain before him when, when we feel that the pain and suffering are not fair. God does not condemn us um, when we do that. Do you know why? Because in the first place, when complaining before God, uh, yeah, in the first place, when complaining before God, this happens when you pray to God. The only, the only um, context when you complain God is, is when you are praying to God. And if you are praying to God, it's because you believe that he is. And if that you believe that he is, you know that he can change the situation even if he does, doesn't do that. And if you are talking to God, then you are still coming to him. And if you are still coming to him, that is faith. Even though at that very moment, your faith is being expressed in a form of complaint. Okay, so if you are feeling like you are going through suffering, that your suffering is not fair, well, I would say the psalm invites us, the Bible itself invites us to come and tell God how we are feeling. If you are sensing that that is not fair, if you are feeling that that is not fair, you can tell him. He will hear you. It is better to tell him uh, because he already knows it anyways. Now, in our text, Paul shows us a way to consider suffering. Um, and he says, when I suffer, I think about this, uh, Paul says. I think about the glory that, we, uh, that will be revealed in the age to come. That means that Paul um, knows that when we suffer, we are tempted and we also lose perspective. And we need to remember about the glory that will be revealed uh, to us and in us. We need to consider, uh, as Paul says, right, um, using our minds to think about suffering in a proper way. What a glorious day will be when all suffering is gone and only glory will be shown, not only to me, but also in, in me. So uh, in the same way in, in that Paul is considering suffering, um, no, we ourselves should consider, consider it as well. Now the, the, third, uh, the third thing that I would like to share with you is the Christ-centered paradigm of suffering. The Christ-centered paradigm of suffering. Not only does Paul assume that Christians suffer, 
Not only does he teach us how to think about suffering, but he also tells us that there is a paradigmatic principle operating in every believer. And this principle is that Christ's life is shaping your life. Christ's life shapes also your life. And what is this paradigm of Christ? Listen to what First uh, Peter, um, verse one, uh, chapter one, verse uh, ten and eleven says, concerning this salvation, the prophet who prophesied um, about the grace that was be yours, search and inquire carefully, inquiring what person or or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Do you hear those words, sufferings and glory? That's the paradigm of Christ's life. His ministry, the Christ's ministry, can be summarized in these two words, sufferings and glory. And what the Apostle Peter is saying here, basically, is that the whole Old Testament can be summarized also in these two words. I'm giving you, basically, the key to understand what the Old Testament is all about. I'm giving you the key to unlock every single story in the Old Testament. Whenever you read the Old Testament you will be able or you should be able to see the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's what the Bible is all about. Now, what, that's what Peter says about Christ. Now, going back to Romans 8, uh, the, the text that we are considering, look at what Paul is doing in verse 17. He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. With, with him. This is not Paul's arbitrary word choice. Okay? Paul is actually making a parallelism between Christ and believers. And he's drawing an inference that is grounded in our union with Christ, and, he's, and he is applying the structure of Christ's life to all believers. So, according to Paul, Christ's life becomes the pattern after which all the lives of his followers are shaped. Okay? Christ's life becomes the pattern after which all the lives of his followers are shaped. Your life has been shaped by Christ's paradigm. Your life is also about suffering and glory, in other words, you if, are, if you are a believer, if you believe in Christ, that, then that means that you will go through the same paradigm. Now, I want to acknowledge that there is a grammatical challenge in the structure of verse 17. Because Paul uses a conditional clause in this section. He says, provided that you suffer. And this uh, word provided that, uh, that you suffer can be also translated as if indeed you suffer. If indeed you suffer. Okay? So it seems 
that Paul is saying that suffering is a condition for becoming a child of God. Okay? We must suffer first to become, become sons and daughters of God. But this is not what Paul is actually teaching here. And according to what the whole Bible teaches, uh, this cannot be the case. So what does Paul mean by provided, provided that you suffer with him? Well, again, Professor uh, Richard Gaffin says that the conditional clause in Romans, Romans uh, 8, 17 is like the one that we found uh, in uh, verse 9. It says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Another way to uh, put this would be, since the spirit of God dwells in you, you are in the spirit and you are not in the flesh. So that's basically what Paul is saying here. Um, the way we should, we should understand then the conditional clause is basically, since you suffer, you are fellow heirs with Christ. Okay? In other words, suffering is just the result or the evidence that you are a son and a daughter of God. And Gaffin continues and says, suffering with Christ is not a condition to be fulfilled in order to earn adoption, but a condition or circumstance given without, without adoption. It's a condition or circumstance given without adop adoption. So Christians, you will suffer. If you haven't, this is one thing for sure. You will suffer. This is the path that Jesus Christ went through and is the path, uh, the path that we are also going to go through. In his book, How Long, O Lord, theologian D.A. Uh, Carson talks about the importance of having a set of belief for moments of suffering. And, and I think that a fundamental idea that you and I must grasp as a Christian for moments of suffering is precisely what Paul is talking about here. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Um, union with Christ, dear friends, brothers, sisters, has profound theological and practical implications for you as Christians who suffer. And let me take a moment to think about those implications. The first thing is what I, I already said. All Christians or every Christian will suffer. If you haven't, there is one thing for sure, you will suffer. Your master who loves you suffered. You will suffer as well. Another implication of uh, suffering in union with Christ is that you never suffer alone. You know, one of the things that everyone who has gone through painful, um, extenuating experiences of suffering we can say, or they can say, is that they felt alone. 
But hear me well. Because you are united to Christ, you never suffer alone. Never. So to the question, why do Christians suffer? Or why do I suffer? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever asked that question? The answer is, I suffer because I am united to my Christ, to my Messiah. And this union is so intricate, so tight, so unchangeable, so indestructible, that when I suffer on earth, hear me well, please. When I, when you suffer on earth in a mysterious way, hear me well, please. My Redeemer, your Redeemer in heaven suffers with you. I'm going to let that sink into your mind. And this might sound strange to many of you. My Redeemer in heaven suffers? I thought he was already glorified. I thought that suffering at this moment is not part of, but of his ministry or of his life. Suffering, some of us think it's impossible for the risen Christ. And I'm going to acknowledge first that I cannot fully explain this in the first place. I cannot fully explain this mystery, but hear what the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ, Son of God, said to Paul when he was persecuting the church in the book of Acts. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting those who follow me? Christ, in a very um, close way, he identifies himself with his people, that whatever you do to his people, you do it to him. And when Paul is killing, persecuting, and making the church suffer, he is doing that to Christ himself, who is enthroned in heaven. So what does it mean that Christ suffers with you? Well, B.B. Warfield, uh, who is known as the last great Princeton theologian, wrote an essay that he entitled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. In his essay, Warfield goes through the different emotions that Jesus experienced throughout his life. And, and, and think about this. The second person of the Trinity, he became flesh. He became one of, one of us. He became human. He was the only perfect human who walked on this dusty earth in his humanity, the Son of God, and experience all sorts of human emotions. And yes, all those emotions that you have felt so many times, but he felt them without sin, in a godly way. So if you want to know how the perfect human, the ideal human was supposed to feel, look to Jesus. He always felt in a holy and perfect way. Warfield says that compassion is the emotion most attributed 
to Jesus in the New Testament. He is compassionate and tender to the broken heart. Now remember that when Christ ascended to heaven, he did not stop being a human. Oh, this is a great news for us. He did not stop being human. The author of Hebrews says that Christ remains one of us forever. So the resurrected, ascended, and glorified Christ, sitting on the throne, still experiences human emotions. That is why he can be compassionate about our sufferings. That is why he can suffer with us as well. But you know, Christ not only suffers with us in the sense that, 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 that he is with us going through painful experiences. Jesus gets furious at those things that make you suffer. Have you thought about that? In John 11, when Lazarus, his friend, died, this is the passage when we read that Jesus wept. Remember? The Bible says in that passage that when Jesus saw Mary crying or weeping for her brother, um, Uh, John says, when Jesus saw Mary weeping for her brother and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the word that has been translated as deeply moved in the original means that he's angry, that he's furious and full of indignation for that thing that is making Mary suffer the death of his brother. Jesus is not angry with Mary because she is brother, because she is weeping for, his, for her brother. Jesus rages at those things that make Mary weep because Jesus knows that this was not supposed to be the case. The condition under which the world is was not supposed to be the case. He knows um, that when people suffer, something is wrong. It indicates that something is wrong. So for those who think that you are alone when suffering, let me remind you again, you are never alone if you are in Christ. He is suffering with you. For those, uh, for those of you who may think that your suffering is unjust, there might, there, there might be that the case. That, that might be the case. But remember that Jesus also gets furious at those things that are unfair, that are happening to you. And he suffers with you because he knows that all those sufferings may be consequences of sin. Another implication of our union with Christ is that when we suffer, we should suffer in community. Your suffering will invite you to isolate yourself 
in self-pity or whatever the reaction you are having. But Christ, well, God through Christ, have made, uh, has made us uh, part of a body so that we will not suffer um, without a community. And one last thing that I would like to say also is that we should consider that suffering, listen, we, we don't think about this this way, this way, but suffering, the Bible says, that suffering for you as a Christian is a gift. Have you thought about that? God loves you so much in Christ that in his wisdom, he prepared a gift that we don't like. Yeah, have you, have you been, uh, get, uh, brought a present to a kid and, and then he opens it and then he's like, ah. <laughs> well, suffering is like that. God prepared a gift, a present for us, and we don't like it. But hear me, well, the, the reason why you are suffering is because you are being identified in, a, in the closest way possible to your Christ, the Christ that died for you and wanted to save you. We may not know all the reasons why we suffer. We might never figure it out. And that's okay. God didn't want us to know everything about our sufferings. But know this, Christ is suffering with you and you with him. This close relationship that you are having with him is so dearly to him that even in your moments of darkness, he delights in you. He's all holding on to you. I would like to read uh, to, to end a small poem that someone wrote, someone called Bob, 50 years old guy. L listen to what he says. He is in a conversation with God about his sufferings. Why did my daughter's husband, my, why did my daughter's husband break her heart? God, I know little child. Would you tell me, Father? I want my son. Why does my wife have to live in pain? God, I know little child. Would you tell me? Would you tell me, Father? It would make it easier. It wouldn't, my son. Why do parents have to bury their children? Isn't right. It isn't right. It isn't, little child. Then get rid of death, Father. I am my son. Why are you, why are you people abused, persecuted, and killed? Can you protect them? I can, little child. Then do something. I did, my son. Why do my parents have to finish their lives in unrelenting unrelent misery? How is that merciful? It is, little child. Then I don't understand mercy. You don't, my son. 
but it does hurt so much so, sometimes. I know, little child. How do you know, Father? I have felt all the pain of sin, my son. Can you make it stop? I can, little child. Then do something. I started 2,000 years ago, and it will be finished soon, my son. I believe you, Father. Help my unbelief. I love you, my son. May God grace, give, give us the grace to embrace suffering, even if it if as as suffering actually gets us closer to Christ. Please rise. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and it is of jo uh, our joy to give you thanks and praise, O Lord our God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, your son, and that we know that you love us even in the midst of our suffering. We praise you for making your son the Lord of all things, the Lord of this age and the age to come. So we join our voices with all the company of heaven in their unending hymn of praise.